Well, church, we, we went on a staff retreat this week. It was, it was lots of fun. And as we went there to pray and to worship and to plan, um, we did have a couple of breaks. And during one of the breaks, because we were in the Cotswolds, we did what used really, it's almost mandatory to do in the Cotswolds, and we, we broke out the croquet set. And there were a few people with some very unorthodox techniques. There was some round arm stuff going on, which is not really how it should be. And there was um, very minor damage to the lawn. But uh, while we were playing the game of croquet, it was one of the many games in which I ended up a, a loser, uh, I saw a small bird on the ground and initially assumed it was in distress. It was, it was disheveled and it looked somewhat also dismayed. It was vulnerable and a little bit hopeless. It looked a little bit like this, this birdie. Oh, what a sweet little bird. Now, Dan, our intern, uh, dutifully tried to pick it up because I said it might be a good idea, but thankfully he failed. Now, this was not a bird in distress. This was a fledgling. Now, a fledgling, for those of you who aren't Duncan Lyon, <laughs> is a bird in the early stages of development, and uh, what happens is it's kicked out of the nest. It has to leave the nest, but there is a period before it learns to fly, and in this period, it is uniquely vulnerable. And it, until it learns to fly, it is, it is in danger. It par its parent at this point still s looks over it, it's still in, in some way is caring for it, which is why you shouldn't touch the thing. So we learned later. Uh, now people often assume, people, ignorant people, like myself and Dan, often assume that you have to sort of get involved at this point. But actually that is not the case. And when Martha, who knows things about the countryside, uh, came along, she set us straight. And we continued on our game for a little bit longer. The point is that the bird has to eventually learn to fly. Otherwise, it will not survive and it, it won't walk out and work out and live in the fullness of its vocation, which is to be a flying creature. That's the point of a bird. If it can't do that, it won't live in, its, in the fullness of the life that it was intended to live for. Flight is what it's for, but flight is not inevitable. There are some birds who never take to flight. After all, and this serves, I believe, this morning as a powerful image. When I saw it, I knew I'd use it, and I was planning to use it as soon as possible. It serves as a powerful image for the Christian life. What it means to follow Jesus. We were born to fly, which I'm sure is a Westlife song or something. By which I mean we were born to live life in the fullness of the spirit. We were born not just to sort of hop around on the earth looking vaguely disheveled and dismayed. And if that uh, articulates what you feel like often, I understand that. That's how I feel like often. But that's not what we were born for as Jesus followers. We were born to engage in the fullness of the life of the kingdom. Which means taking to flight. And that's what we began, I think, to explore in new ways last week as Steve Nicholson was with us. And if you weren't here, I would encourage you to catch up online. But as I look at my own life, as I look at the state of the church in this nation, even the broader state of the church in the Western world at least, by the way, the church is thriving across the earth. 
Globally, the church is thriving, and you could be forgiven. For, if you, all you read is the BBC, you might not know that. I do suggest you read a little bit wider than that. But the church is thriving. But we do also understand that in the Western world, the church has significant challenges. It feels at times, doesn't it, like we're grounded? Relatively few of us seem to achieve flight, seem to be able to sustain flight. We either get stuck in the nest, unwilling, afraid to leave the safety and the security of the home. Or once we're pushed out, we hop about for a bit and then we start tweeting, waiting for mum or dad to come and get us. We settle, it's too easy to settle for a mediocre Christian life. A half-life. But this isn't what the Lord Jesus intended for any of us. He intended that we live and experience the fullness of the kingdom. Everything that's in the book is available for us. And that includes the suffering as well. Lest you think I'm uh, veering into triumphalism. But he wanted us to experience the freedom and the peace and the joy in the life of his kingdom today. It's actually possible. And that's what the vision that he has for us is. And and in this follow-up, I suppose, to our series on the cross, I want us over the next few weeks to look at what it means to walk in the way of the cross, walk in the way of Jesus, to follow him, to be a disciple. What does it actually mean in real life? And I guess this is a bit of a bridge message into that series. And I want to do that by looking at the idea of total surrender. Total surrender. Now that Jesus imagined and desired and expected total surrender for and from every one of his disciples can't be up for debate. For those who at least have engaged or read with his, read his teaching, it isn't a controversial thing to suggest that this was his vision for the way that disciples enter into the kingdom. You may not have heard that message many times preached in a church, but that is clear from the teaching of Jesus. And Bill read beautifully just one of the many, many times that Jesus teaches into this idea this morning. If anyone would come after me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. Luke's uh, version, uh, as we're reading today, adds the word daily, just to remind us that we're not one and done, Take up the cross daily and follow me. For whosoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it or find it. What will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their life or their soul? This is a vision of total surrender, to deny themselves. That's what Jesus says discipleship begins with. Denial, to deny, to reject, to disavow, to refuse. To count your life as refuse. To refuse what? To refuse your plan, to refuse yourself. What is the self? The self is anything that begins with the phrase, my My life, my money, my plans, my career, my family, my hope, my future, my dreams and visions. These aren't necessarily bad things, folks. 
but they are things which do not properly belong to us. We are, as disciples, called into a life where we don't hold on to these things. In fact, we don't hold on to anything because we don't even hold on to life. And that's what the vision, the dream, that's what the perspective, that's why Jesus talks about death, by the way. Death, the ultimate surrender. To submit all to him is to enter into the kingdom. Not, and it's not because it's all bad, but it's because we consider that it's ours. Now this is all just refresher. This is all revision. This is Christianity 101. But this isn't the kind of thing that we talk about often. This isn't, folks, your best life now. But it is far better than your best life could ever be. So to deny themselves, that's the beginning. And then Jesus says, as if to sort of reinforce the point, to push it a little bit further, to deny yourself and to take up your cross daily. Almost as if to say to those hearing him and to those of us today, if you were in any doubt as to what I'm talking about, before you do what religious people do and spiritualize it. Oh, he's talking. He's talking in vague terms about things that um, we might consider doing on certain days of the week. And oh, other people should do this. These other sinners out there, this is for them. Or this is for the first century. Ah, they didn't really understand things fully there. You know, we sort of make a, we build some kind of distance between the command, which by the way it is, not advice, it's a command, and our own lives. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily. Now again, we've just done a series on the cross, I won't bore you with the details, but you know now, because you've been schooled in this, that the cross is the most brutal and humiliating spectacle of a death imaginable. To carry a cross would be to carry the, the, the cross, the, the, the um, horizontal beam to your death. And Jesus is saying, this isn't a cakewalk. Discipleship is not a cakewalk, it's a crosswalk. We all walk toward, gleefully, willingly, our own death. And once you've left behind the self, you have room to pick up the cross. That's the point. And the cross is his mission. It's anything that begins with his. His plan, his purpose, his dream, his vision, his future, his hope, his peace, his joy, his life. All of him. We lay down all of us and we receive all of him. And follow me. Not follow me. Don't do that. You can do far better than that. Follow him. Follow him. Walk after him. Walk in his footsteps. Be covered in his dust. What he's saying is that if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for you and me. Now, this is huge. It's so simple. And I think the simplicity of it is part of the problem. Because it's so hard hitting and it's so easy to, to miss the profundity of it and the importance of it. And also we've read it so many times, haven't we? Many of us. Some of us would be new to this, but many of us have read this so many times that it's become just normal. No, it's radical. It's so radical. Now Jesus is not, just in case you're wondering, Jesus is not saying that 
every person who follows him should expect martyrdom. And if you're not martyred, you're not doing it properly. Now, (laughs) martyrdom has been a constant for the church throughout history. I talked about the places the church is growing most. These are also the places where Christians are under most physical threat. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying is necessarily, these two things don't necessarily come together. But he is, he is saying that disciples of Jesus must consider all of their lives as forfeit for the kingdom of God. Let me strengthen that as if it needed strengthening. But let me strengthen it a little bit more. Unless we come to this place of total surrender, we will not enter into the fullness of his kingdom. You know, there's that beautiful picture of this. In the gospel, isn't there, the story of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler? And the rich young rulers, you know, if you don't know the story, what happens is this rich young man comes to Jesus and he says, you know, what what can I do to inherit eternal life? What can I do to receive, to walk in, to experience, to enjoy the kingdom of God? It's the right question. And Jesus basically says, you know, sell all you have and give it away. And, and it's, it, you know, it's a tremendously gracious encounter. I encourage you to read this again later on your own. You see it in Mark 10 and Matthew 19. It, when Jesus encounters him, there's this moment where Jesus says, Jesus, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. It's full of grace. It's dripping in mercy. But Jesus is rigorous with the command. He says to this man, if you want to enter into the kingdom, you have to sell all you have and give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. And this man, because he loved his things more than he wanted and desired the kingdom, walked away sad. It is shocking. And you should hear this today and be shocked by it. Because the disciples then also were shocked. Now Jesus didn't run after him and say, oh, actually, I could really do with some more followers. And uh, can I just dilute this a little bit for you? Why don't you hang out for a bit first? And let me put you on the the payment plan. Let's just just, just do this. Should we do this piece by piece? And shall we? I can probably work with with a partial surrender for a period. And then can we see if we can upgrade you later on and maybe bring you into the full surrender? And then we'll see. Maybe you might then one day become a disciple. We would do that if we were leading the movement of Jesus. Church leaders like me, we would do that because we like... We like preaching to full rooms. And Jesus doesn't soften it at all. The man walks away. And he begins a conversation with his disciples about it. You know, the working image for discipleship in the New Testament is death. Death. The fundamental Christian initiation rite is baptism. It's, it's not just in the words, it's in the things we do. When we plunge them into the water... They don't come out the same. It's it's an initiation into death. Here's how Paul puts it later in his letter to the Galatians. I love this. I have been, Galatians 2.20, crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. 
The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. Says it all. Now listen to this. I no longer live. I've given up the self. It's no longer me. My life is no longer a thing. I don't any longer possess anything. I don't claim any rights at all. But listen to this. But Christ lives in me. This is the gospel. This is it. When we give up everything, what begins to happen is the most extraordinary thing. When we have given up the self, when we empty ourselves, to use that word that is used of Jesus in Philippians 2, God in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, starts to live his life in us. And that feels like flying. It's glorious and it's gorgeous and it's full and it's rich and it's beautiful. And it feels like joy and suffering, rejoicing even as we weep. It feels like transformation and you know what? It feels like power. It feels like power. He wants to live his life in us and through us. And all we have to do is give up everything. If we're trying to hold on to our lives, we limit the possibility of what God can do through us. We remain fledgling Christians, disheveled, hopping around on the earth but without fully engaging with what God has for us. Now this is where many of us remain and we're content to remain here because perhaps nobody's told us of what the future can look like, of what the now can look like, of what being in the kingdom is actually like. I believe this is why the church is so powerless. I believe it is our lack of surrender that means that we don't walk in the power of God. Amy agrees. <laughs> the rest of you look <laughs> like you're wondering why you came to church today. <laughs> why is this man so angry? <laughs> Hear this. It's not about to get easier. Hear this. I believe one of the greatest issues in contemporary Christianity in this part of the world is that we have been led to believe by people like me that you can enter into the kingdom without walking with a cross on your back. By which I mean that we have been told that you can keep your life and also have Jesus' life. And he, listen to me now, he never ever offered that. Ever, to anyone. This is the reason so many of us are dissatisfied with our faith. Listen to this. Christoph Blumhart. What a word. I I only use quotes of people whose whose names I like to say. Fleming Rutledge. Christoph Blumhart. Who's the other one? Another one. (laughs) He says this. Unless our lives are molded according to this rulership, which is Jesus' kingdom... Jesus' kingship, we shall always remain dissatisfied. We may enjoy modern conveniences. He lived in the 1800s before Netflix, but he understood. But the reality of eternal things will be smothered unless the reign of God's truth and justice dawns 
as the light, as the lift, as this, that's not right, as the, as the light of life, I think I should say, not the lift of life, as the light of life. What if the dissatisfaction is because there's an incomplete surrender? The demand is clear. Discipleship is a crosswalk. But so often we choose the other. We choose to hop around. Why? Because we like the vision of safety. We love... We love safety, and I'm not going to harp on about this again because I feel I've done this to death. Many of you are walking around desperate not to stay, say the words to me, stay safe, because you know my lip will start to twitch and my, my eye will start to twitch also. Let me just say this. These are words I can never imagine coming from the mouth of Jesus. He did not say when he sent the disciples out, do not take an extra tunic or an extra, uh, or any money, or an extra pair of shoes, or whatever else he said, but stay safe. Words that I can never imagine coming from his, his mouth. Safety's not a vision in the kingdom. We like to be safe. We love control. Does anybody else love a bit of control? Oh, I love to control my heating from somewhere else in the world. <laughs> I love it. Alexa, can you turn it down? Half a degree. I'm feeling a bit warm. <laughs> oh dear. I love control. <laughs> That's why God gave me twins. <laughs> What's that smell? <laughs> and where's it coming from? And six months later, you find the nappy. We don't like to be interrupted. We want to control our schedules. We want to be able to go quick without being interrupted at any point. We hate the feeling of not knowing. Don't we? Don't you just want to know? Do you know, in the old days before Google, people used to say this phrase. Here it is. I don't know. (laughs) I know, I know it's weird. But some of the older folks here have said it. Flight is unpredictable, right? It's unpredictable. Where's the current of the wind going to go? What would it, but listen to this, what would it feel like to soar? Flying without wings, that's definitely a Westlife one. (laughs) We love safety, we love comfort, control rather, we also love comfort. This might be our favorite one. The kingdom... That's a faff. That's a bit of effort. That's going to be hard work, isn't it? Self-denial? Surrender? Have you got anything easier? Have you got anything that goes with my slippers? Is that on Netflix? I'll get to that radical Jesus stuff once my career is established. Once I've got 10 grand in savings. Once I'm married. Once the kids have left home, it's too costly now. These are rival gods. They offer the world, but they squeeze the life from the church. What we will not surrender cannot be transformed. One man who discovered this was called Reese Howells. Here he is. What a legend. You can tell he's a legend. He was born in South Wales on October the 10th, 
1879, and he became a powerful man of faith. God used him and the community that he founded, many communities he founded actually in very, very powerful ways. He became an extraordinary intercessor. And God used him to establish places of training for Christian ministry. They sent many missionaries to some of the most dangerous places in the world. God also used him and his group of intercessors profoundly in the Second World War. If you want to read about all of this, there's a book called Intercessor by a guy called Norman Grubb, and it is beautiful. I encourage you to read it. He was from a family of faith. Uh, He was unusually pious. He loved attending church meetings, even before he had any personal faith. But he was also very ambitious. And he began to hear about how some younger men from the area of South Wales, Brinneman, from, uh, that he came from, they'd, they'd gone and they'd left and they'd gone to America and began to earn very good money. And he heard about this, they sent report of it, and he, as soon as he heard about it, he said, I want a part of that. I want to build uh, with this personal ambition, I'm going to America. And so he did. Now, he arrived in America, and having said goodbye to everything and everyone, with this intention of building wealth. And uh, even while he was there, it's interesting, he, he, began, he carried on with his purpose and his plan for going to Christian meetings. He, he didn't ever miss the prayer meeting, but he wasn't personally converted. Later, his cousin, Evan Lewis, began to ask him if he was born again. He'd never heard this phrase. But, and he became defensive. He said to his cousin, what do you mean? My life is as good as yours. But the conversation shook him. Something went down deep into him. And not much later, he, he contracted typhoid fever and was facing death. Very, very sick. And he was alone and in a faraway land. And in that moment, he cried out to God saying, give me one more chance and I will give my life to you. Be careful what prayers of surrender you pray even on your deathbed. Now he quickly began to recover, but he was a changed man. A vow had been made. And he said this later on, as I faced losing all and entering an eternal darkness, I touched real life for the first time. I'd seen the world at its very best taking me down to a lost eternity. And I knew I owed my all to God who had delivered me. For five months, he day by day sought for a way to reach God. And in the end, God sent somebody to reach him. He, uh, Howells had escaped death, but he was still afraid of death, and he met a converted a Jewish man uh, called Morris Rubin, who began to explain the meaning of the cross of Jesus to Reese Howells. He told him that uh, Reuben himself had belonged to a very, very wealthy family. He'd been a business person, and he stood to inherit everything, but when he was converted, when he became a Christian, he lost it all. In the midst of that, his brother actually offered um, him, him this offer. He said, look, uh, as soon as you convert, you'll lose your inheritance. But if you just go quietly, I'll send you off to the West Coast and you can have a very big pension. Just don't make it public. Morris Rubin rejected that. In the end, he lost all of his wealth. He lost even his wife and his child. But he would not renege upon his commitment to Jesus. When Reese Howells heard about how Morris Rubin had given everything, he was stunned. Later, as Morris Rubin was speaking about the cross to Reese, Reese was converted. He said this, as Morris Rubin brought those sacred scenes before us, I too, I too saw the cross. It seemed as if I spent ages at the Savior's feet, and I wept and wept. I felt as if he had died just for me. I lost myself. 
I'd been living in the fear of death, and I saw him taking that death for me. He broke me. And everything in me went right out to him. Then he spoke to me and said, behold, may I come into you? Will you accept me? Reese responded and received salvation. This was the first surrender. It was the surrender of his ambition. This, if you like, was leaving the nest. Everything changed in that moment. His desires were transformed. He no longer wanted wealth. And he left America and went back to Wales. My middle name's Llewellyn. That's why I can do that. (laughs) And yet there was more for Reese Howells. Sometime later, once he'd returned, he was caught up in a revival in the early, early 20th century in Wales. And in one meeting, he became aware of the fact that though he'd been saved by Christ Jesus, he had not yet surrendered all. The next day, in the following meeting, the Holy Spirit appeared to him and began to speak to him. He'd only known the Spirit before as an influence on meetings, an atmosphere, if you like. But in this moment, the Spirit began to speak about how he is a person. And he too desires surrender. And here's what the Spirit said to him. As the Savior had a body, so I dwell in the cleansed temple of the believer. I'm a person. I am God. And I come to ask you to give your body to me that I may work through it. I need a body for my temple, but it must belong to me without reserve. For two persons with different wills can never live in the same body. Will you give me yours? But if I come in, I come as God, and you must go out. I shall not mix myself with yourself What he was being invited into was total surrender. From that meeting on, he went into a field and cried his eyes out. He knew what he was being called to let go of. He understood that he had received, quote, the sentence of death as really a prisoner in the dock. He said, I'd lived in my body for 26 years and could I easily give it up? I intended to do it, but oh, the cost. I wept for days. I lost seven pounds in weight just because I saw what he was offering me. How I wished I had never seen it. One thing he reminded reminded me of was that he had only come to take what I'd already promised the Savior, not in part, but the whole. Howells gave it all. It took him six days, but he surrendered everything, not just to Jesus, but to the Holy Spirit, and God took hold of his life in the most extraordinary way, He used him to change the destiny of nations. What do you want? What do you want? I want that. I want the kingdom. I want his power. I want to see him glorified, his name lifted up. And I can't do that. And I too, probably like you, I'm terrified of what it might cost but I don't want to stay hopping around on the ground looking disheveled and dismayed any longer. I want to see his power moving through the church again. I want to see a church on fire. I want to see cities come alive. I want to see families renewed. I want to see broken hearts restored, broken bodies healed. I want to see his power back in his church. I want to see addicts cleansed 
brought out of slavery. I want to see mental illness just healed. I want to see cancers disappear. I want to see anxiety just not tolerated because people walk into the building and as they walk up the Mansfield Road, they're healed. I want to see communities of faith multiplied in, in cities across the earth. With a revival fire, I want to see a generation of revivalists. I want to see the children leading us. Not not considered a a distraction, but the main event. I want to see us sending missionaries. I want to see all of it. I want to see the kingdom. I want to see a multiracial, a racial, a multi-ethnic, a multi-social church, which is impossible but for the grace of God. I'm excited about it. I think it's possible. It's just not possible in my strength. It's not possible in your strength. It is only possible through total surrender. What it means for us is ceasing to lay any claim on our lives, and that includes our desires, our preferences, our identity, a new term that's been birthed in the last 100 years, our career, our money, our sexual fulfillment, our longings for wealth, comfort, safety, security, anything on Maslow's hierarchy, which is not in the Bible, our desire for financial security, our hopes even for our own children. Now before you get too downcast, (laughs) this is the best offer any of us will ever receive. Because what we're being offered is, in contrast, in return for giving him your life is his life. And he is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has existed eternally in a community of persons which are bonded together in love. Not just the kind of love that you or I give one another, but the love that exists which is perfect and whole and full and true and abundant and merciful and gracious and holy. And you and I can taste that and share in that today. What a deal. It's such a good offer. This is what being airborne is. And the thing that the rich young ruler got wrong was that he misunderstood where the real value was. The value is not in the money, the value is in the king. I'll close with this. This last week, our staff team were away. I mentioned that, the croquet. We did some other stuff as well. And before the croquet came, a a powerful consecration moment. And we were gathered in a library, we were surrounded by books, some of which were hundreds or more years old, and it's the kind of environment where you can't help but meet with God, and, and there was just a powerful sense of the presence of God, and many of us were led in a surrender. We were verbally articulating what we were surrendering. People surrendered dreams, people surrendered hopes, people surrendered their children, people surrendered their ministries, we surrendered this church, and more. All of them placed on the altar and the Holy Spirit was with us in power. It was a time of breaking through. There was a time of uh, renewed and restored power. It was beautiful and it was painful. There was so much weeping. There was so much weeping and there was healing. I believe that God wants to release this in the church. But if he pours his power on us and we're not surrendered, it will wreck us. It will ruin us. But if we surrender, and he empowers that surrender, then anything is possible. So today, are you new to this idea? Is this your first time in church? (laughs) Next week, do a seeker service. 
Well, if you are, you've, you've got the beans, so this is it. Jesus is calling you to give your life, and he will give you his life in exchange. And you're going to love it. You're going to love him because he is pure and beautiful. He's the friend you've always wanted. He's the king you've always needed. Surrender your life. Come to Christ today. But this isn't just a message for the new folks. If anything, I think this message should hit harder with those of us who have journeyed with Jesus for decades. Because, you know, sometimes we can grow a bit stale. We can forget what it feels like to be airborne. Or we imagine, well, we've, I've flown. I've done it. I've done my bit. <sighs> Leave it to the youngies. Those fledglings, look, let's watch them fly. No. Take up your cross daily. Surrender daily. Many, many times it's those of us who've left the nest some time ago, who've been believers for many years, who've plateaued. We're, we spiritualize this radical claim that Jesus makes. There is a new surrender for the oldies, for the middlies as well. There is a deeper consecration. Do you have all of the kingdom you want in your life? There is more, and it comes through a new surrender. Finish with a Bloomheart quote because, well, you should. If God's kingdom is important to you, then you need not think that you have to be anything important. Rather, you should place yourself at Jesus' feet thinking, I am a weak human being, but Jesus lives. Jesus is victor. I will give myself to him and I will turn everything over to him so that nothing can rule over me but he 